And open, if you would, please, to Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8, or the 8th Psalm. And we'll read together this psalm uh, is familiar to many of us, but hopefully not too familiar so that we just fall asleep during this time. But we praise this God, and we glorify this great God who's proclaimed and praised and magnified in this psalm. Psalm 8, it begins before verse 1 with these words, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we read these words and we agree with these words, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, help us as we read and as we study, God, to learn more of who you are and to to grow in honor and awe, respect and fear of who you are. Lord, we praise you for this morning. In the name of your Son, help us to change to be more like him. Amen. Coming up this week is the holiday, Thanksgiving, and what a strange holiday. (laughs) And it's a good idea, you know, let's set aside an entire day just to be thankful. What a great idea, but when we think about it, you know, it's strange because even though we set aside that particular day, it's not a a certain date every year, is it? It's it's the same uh, designated day, but it's a strange day of the week. It's a Thursday instead of like a Monday or a Friday, which would kind of help with that three-day weekend idea. (laughs) And and it changes the date, and it it was originally set up to be the fourth Thursday of November until large retailers successfully lobbied, finally, to have it moved to the third Thursday for the sake of extending the Christmas shopping season. And aside from grocery stores, retail stores just haven't really found a good way to monetize this holiday, uh, except just to make it part of kicking off the Christmas shopping season. And then the day itself became more about excessive amounts of food and and being thankful for it, right? The thankful for all of the food, as if we couldn't be thankful for just a regular portion of food, (laughs) or even normal food. (laughs) It's not that it's abnormal, but we just don't eat the way that we eat on Thanksgiving, not just in quality, quantity, but in the types of foods. 40% of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup sales happens just for Thanksgiving, (laughs) 50% of the whole turkeys that are consumed in America happen on one day, Thanksgiving. The the most of the rest of them happen on Christmas. We just don't eat whole turkeys. 
most of the time, or green bean casserole, or stuffing and cranberry sauce and all of that. One industry has been pretty successful in gaining a foothold, sports, namely football, and that's only grown over the years. But then it's also become controversial because of the presumed origins of Thanksgiving and the pilgrims in the New World and their activities with the Native Americans and their treatment afterward. And it just seems to be just a strange little holiday that can only happen on the day itself. Right? There's not a whole lot of lead up to it unless you're cooking. <laughs> There's the planning for that. But, you know, Christmas gets an entire season. And it not only gets Christmas Day, it gets Christmas Eve. Right? New Year's and New Year's Eve, it gets two days. Smaller holidays like Valentine's Day get decorations and lead up. And even Halloween gets in on the action, right? I mean, with all of the money and the decorations. But Thanksgiving is just sort of sandwiched in between them. And you're just, you're just expected to eat that day <laughs> and say, Happy Thanksgiving that day. And that's about it, right? And you may be even asking, why are we talking about it on this Sunday? It's not till later on this week, right? Why wouldn't we talk about it next Sunday? Isn't it closer then? But see, by next Sunday, Thanksgiving will be over, and people will have already started thinking about Christmas. If they hadn't already transitioned from pumpkin spice lattes to peppermint lattes, (laughs) they'll be doing that and singing Christmas carols, and, and Christmas will be on our mind. So it seems like a good idea to consider thanks, giving thanks before the day itself, so that we can get it clear in our minds now ahead of time and and make sure that we are giving thanks. Because a person who believes in Jesus Christ, a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus is supposed to be thankful how often? All the time. That's right. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So the three things Christians are supposed to always do is rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Why? He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It reminds me of the discussion we had around our table Monday night at the, at, with the men's discipleship and asking the question, why should we apply the scriptures to our lives? We said, because we're Christians, <laughs> right? I mean, Christians should do Christian things like um, applying the scriptures. You know, a turkey is a turkey and you expect it to do turkey things. Christians are Christians. You would expect them to do Christian things like apply the Bible. So we say this often, but we should be rejoicing and praying and giving thanks all of the time. And if we're looking for God's will in our life, just as an aside, let's start with what he says. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you and for me. But how can we always, in every circumstance, give thanks? With all of the tragedy in the world, with all of the division with all the things that are happening, what could we always give thanks for? When you're at your Thanksgiving meal and the football game has been muted and you've got all the family around and they ask that, that question, <laughs> you know, that question, what are you thankful for? The dreaded question <laughs> that so many people, especially younger people, like, can't we just eat? That question, what, how, what are we going to answer? It's funny that, that children often are very honest when they're asked that question. And we've talked about some of these answers before uh, in previous years, but they say the quiet part out loud, right? The things that we're thinking but wouldn't really say because we don't want people to think less of us. Um, You know, so we give standard answers like family, thankful for family, for food, (laughs) football, you know. uh, Those answers we're supposed to give. But children, one of the top answers that uh, is very honest is, what are you thankful for? Nothing. 
<laughs> Children will give honest answers. Um, Hot Wheels, <laughs> right? One little girl said that she was thankful that her brother isn't a monster because then he would eat me up. <laughs> New shoes, the dog. One boy answered the dog and he doesn't have a dog. So it was, I don't know, the, um, thankful for dogs, I guess. Cookies, quesadillas, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. What if, though, we didn't have any of these things? What if we didn't have this overabundance of food or our toys, our entertainment? You know, there, was, there were no Netflix. You know, there was, there was none of the things that we are um, just using all of the time and taking advantage of and even taking for granted. What if we didn't have a whole lot of people around us so that we could pick and choose those we did like and ignore those we didn't like? And what if we only had basic survival needs. What if we only had that? Would we have anything to be thankful for? And so many of us are looking around, yes, that's right, okay, this time of year, we're supposed to notice all of the things that we have, and we're, yes, we have more than we should, and we should be grateful, and okay, that's true, but let's keep it going. What if we didn't even have the things that we needed to survive? What if we didn't have any food? We didn't know where we could find any potable water, What if persecution arose so that you were on the outside? You and I as Christians were excluded from getting anything that we needed. Could we still give thanks in those circumstances? Would we give thanks? What would we give thanks for? Now, the reason for this is not to cause a bunch of fear, but to point out that too often, even when we're thinking about thankfulness, gratefulness, and thanksgiving, we can be self-centered. When it comes to giving thanks, our thoughts usually go directly to ourselves and what somebody has given me or done for me or um, how much someone has meant to me. So, you know, God, thank you for giving this or for doing that and for saving us. Thank you, friend, for what you've meant to me and what you've done and given. And none of those are bad or wrong, right? None of that is wrong. We should be thankful for all of that, absolutely. But could we, can we be thankful to God apart from anything that he's done for me, for us? Could we praise him? Could we be thankful to God for what he's done for other people? And could we be thankful to God for something other than what he's done or will do or is doing? Could we be thankful to God just because he is God? Because he is the way that he is. Because he is who he is. Psalm 9, 1 is something that we're familiar with. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And that's right, God has done wonderful deeds. He is doing, he will do wonderful deeds. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And this is good to praise him for all of his benefits. What are some of those? The psalmist lists them. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Wow, God does so much for us. And he's so good to us. And there is a giving of thanks because of what he's done for us. But there's also a giving of thanks to God because he's God just because of who he is. Psalm 69.30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And some of us are, why, why, what did he do? Just his name. 
Just his name is worthy of praise. That we would magnify him. That we would give him thanks all because of who he is. Here's the next verse in Psalm 69, verse 31. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. Or we could insert more than a turkey (laughs) or football or family even. Psalm 95 we ask the question, why should we sing to this God? Or, or as it says, make a joyful noise in some of our cases, right? Why should we come into his presence with thanksgiving? Here's the answer in Psalm 95. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Before we get to anything and everything that God has done for me, for us, even before we get to what he does, period, there's God. And his worthiness to be praised in thanks. Psalm seven seventeen. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Zechariah nine seventeen. How great is his goodness! How great his beauty! Just God's existence. And many psalms combine who God is with what He does. But but God is just worthy to be praised and thanked because he is God and because of all that he is. Now, let's look at Psalm 8 and consider his majesty. It begins with a superscript to the choir master. It's directed to the one who's going to be leading the people singing and has instructions according to the gittith, which could be the tune, it could be the melody. We're not sure what that means, but the choir master at the time did. (laughs) They knew what this meant. And it doesn't change what it says because it was written by David. And it doesn't tell us the specific circumstances, but we can tell as we read this together and as we study it together, he must have been sitting outside in the evening looking up and looking around. Let's walk through it together, considering four parts. Let's praise him. Let's give him thanks. Even though the words don't appear in the psalm itself, give thanks or praise him. These are the words that are the heart behind this psalm behind this exclamation and this song. Why should we do this? Well, number one, the Lord is majestic in name, verses one and two. He's majestic in name. Oh, Lord, this is, you see it all in caps. It's his personal name, Yahweh, the name of the Lord. And it is our, this is our Lord. So this is the collective psalm. We're all of us singing this psalm together like we did this morning, like we have been. It's meant for public worship of God because he's our Lord. Lord means, again, master, boss, supervisor. So Christian, you cannot ever say that you've never had a perfect supervisor or perfect boss. Our Lord is our boss. Our Lord is supervisor. The Lord is our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, his personal name is Yahweh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D. But name here means his character, his reputation, his person. All that can be known is summed up in this name. And what is it about his character that's called out here? It's majesty. How majestic. Majesty refers to God as mighty, as noble, lofty. He is elite. He is worthy with a focus on his power and his splendor. That's what majesty is. We don't quite get the whole picture if we think, wow, God's just, he's, he's high and lifted up. No, he's overwhelmingly high. He's surpassingly high, vastly superior, far and away bigger and wiser and more powerful than any of us or all of us put together. We've known of kings, we've heard of emperors and rulers and dictators in human history, and they've accepted 
people's submission and their loyalty and their obedience. We can think of some like Alexander the Great, the funny names that man gives himself, right? <laughs> William the Conqueror, Richard the Lionheart, Louis the Fourteenth, Ashoka, kings who are alive today like Charles the Third of the United Kingdom, Salman of Saudi Arabia. But while these kings and these rulers, these emperors, they're known everywhere, their power does not extend everywhere. They had vast kingdoms, and people argue over who had the biggest kingdom, right? The, the Cyrus, the great of Persia, or Genghis Khan, the, the British Empire, the Russian empires, but none of them had a kingdom. None of them had an empire as vast as God's, the majestic Lord God. How majestic is your name in all the earth, in all locations, in every place that there are people, and in every place where there are no people, how majestic How worthy, how splendor your name is. There is no place where the name of the Lord is not majestic. Even more than that, the rest of verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. His majesty exists everywhere on earth, and his glory is set in place in space. And it's set by God. It's immovable, this word says. So his glory, that's his splendor. It's another word for majesty. It's his light. It's his strength. And it's not contained here on earth. Earth is just too small for the glory of the Lord. It's set out in the heavens, but even the heavens can't contain the glory of God. His glory is set above the heavens to the unknown places. His exceeding greatness is everywhere that we can see and be, and it's everywhere that we can't see and be. It extends far beyond anywhere that we could be. You know, David could look up at the night sky at his time without any what, what they call the, the light pollution or, you know, pollution in the sky to block out the lights. He could see planets and objects in the night sky, but he could only see so far. We can see so much farther now with satellites that take picture for us, and they send them back, and his glory is above all of that. The farthest satellite that we've ever sent out is Voyager 1. It was sent out September 5th, 1977. And so just for, for just over 46 years, it's been traveling away from our planet, and they have estimated that it's traveled over 24 billion miles from Earth during that time. But it's still within our solar system. All of the bodies that, that orbit the sun, it's still within the solar system, 24 billion miles away. And that's really far, but that's all the farther we've gone. And and without even a human being being on board, it's just part of what we've built has gone out there. And when the the immensity of of the solar system is big, but the universe is even bigger. And I, I read one comparison that if you could shrink the size of the earth down to a grain of sand and put that grain of sand somewhere in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you wouldn't even be close to picturing the vastness of the universe compared to our planet. Or they said, another comparison, if you could shrink the entire universe down to the size of just our planet, we wouldn't even register as a, as a grain of sand. It's amazing, yet God's glory is set above all of it. His name is majestic in all the earth, and his glory is above the heavens. It's like David saying, I can't even describe, I can't even picture it. I, his majesty, his glory is bigger than everything, everything put together. It's a recognition that David isn't even able to capture all of God's glory and majesty. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Look at verse 2. With all of this majesty and all of this glory, you might expect some really powerful beings to be all around God and singing His praise, the almighty, majestic, glorious Lord, that He'd have powerful beings and spiritual beings to sing His praise, and you would be right, He has that. We see that in, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation that, that explain these creatures that are around God, but that's not even enough. God's awesome power is at work and is seen in babies and infants. The, the, these are children who are so young they can't talk. They make noises and they cry. We know they cry. <laughs> No words, and they're helpless. They can't roll over or sit up. They're so young, they can't even feed themselves or care for themselves. Yet the almighty, majestic, glorious God established strength out of them. You established, you laid a foundation. It's firm and immovable, strength and power and might. Why? Because of your foes. Who could possibly be a foe, an enemy of God? Well, all mankind is sinful, but especially those who reject him and try to pretend that there is no God. But God establishes strength out of the mouths of the most helpless to reveal his great power. In God's power, a helpless baby who can't even sit up by himself or roll over, in him there is strength established that's stronger than all of those who reject God. All of the foes, the enemies of God, for what purpose? To still, to put an end, to cease the enemy And it says, and the avenger. So God's not only greater and more powerful than anyone who would come against him, he's greater and stronger than the stronger one who would come after to try to avenge what's happened to those who were God's enemies. God stops both of them. He stops all of them. And he can do it with no help from anyone else. He can do it through a baby. That's the story of David before Goliath, right? The the young boy before the giant and the hero of that story, of course, is not David, but the God who worked the victory. And David himself would agree. 1 Samuel 17, David says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of who? The living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. God is the majestic the glorious, the powerful God, we need to be giving thanks to Him for who He is. He's majestic in His name. Number two, verses three to eight, we can see the next part of this, that the Lord is majestic in deed. The Lord is majestic in name. He is majestic, number two, in deed. As we said, it's right for us to praise God for what He has done. But rather than immediately jumping to what He's done for me, what he did for me personally, even when we consider what God has done in addition to all of his benefits to us, his deeds aside from us are worthy of praise and thankfulness. And there are two parts to this. A, verse 3, we see in creation. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, before this in verse 1, I think it was pretty clear David had in mind the vastness of creation the universe, God's majesty and His glory that extends above all of it. It's throughout and over and above, as vast as it is. And that could be what David's talking about here as well, the vastness of it all. But I think there's more here than just the vastness. The heavens are included, all the space and the immensity that we can't see, and and it's difficult even to, to fathom it. But David here considers what he can see, 
the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars. Now, in Bible interpretation, when we see some physical element of man ascribed to God, like fingers here, uh, we call this an anthropomorphism. Because God is a spirit, he's not confined by physical limitations. He doesn't have fingers or an outstretched arm or a mighty hand. He doesn't have eyes. We call those anthropomorphisms. He's a spirit. He exists everywhere. But in a way to condescend to our finite minds and our understandings, his word often uses descriptions that we can understand to highlight truths of who he is. So when David refers to the work of God's fingers... It's a picture of the intricacies of what God has made, that his, his work is skillful. His fingers it refers to the masterful ease. You know, it didn't take that mighty hand and outstretched arm. It was just his fingers. And he did it, he set in place the moon and the stars. And so, yes, it's, it's vast and it's immense, but it's also carefully and masterfully set in place. Consider the moon, that it's, that it's beautiful just to look at, Created on day four of Genesis 1, and scientists debate and they study and they debate some more all about the moon. It's surprisingly complex for just being a big rock. How did it get there? What is it? How does it work? (laughs) One Harvard astrophysicist said that virtually he threw up his hands in a statement and he said, the moon is simply observational error. It doesn't actually exist. We just keep thinking it does because we can't make sense of it. <laughs> we have no idea. It's beyond our capacity to, comp- to explain. God designed it so that it rotates on its axis. It spins, and it rotates at the same rate that it orbits the earth. So the earth is spinning. The moon is spinning. The moon is going around the earth, and yet for all that, the moon always looks at the earth with the same face. There's 40 per- over 40% of the moon that we never see on the earth. And we know that there is a gravitational pull of the moon. It causes the rise and the fall of tides. Scientists have discovered that there is a measurable, not visible, but measurable crustal tide as well. The the crust of the earth moves like the tides when the moon is passing. And it, it rises and falls, not to the same degree, but a similar effect. He says, consider the stars the word for stars is blazing things, the luminaries of the night sky. Skeptics say, well, not everything you see at night is a star. <laughs> and the Bible says, well, no, this is called shining things, all of the luminaries that are in the sky. The Bible is accurate. We don't have to fall for the challenges. But David looked up and he saw the blazing things. And most of them are stars, but there are some other planets, some other bodies. But what are stars? Well, scientists today tell us they are just giant burning balls of gas, right? Here's a more scientific definition. Quote, any object that is sufficiently massive that it can ignite the fusion of elements in its core due to the gravitational pressures, pressures inside the object itself, end quote. Right, a burning ball of gas, right? <laughs> That's what stars are. But one of the most amazing aspects of stars is, of course, their sheer number. One explanation describes how innumerable they are. Humans guess, they still guess, right? We still have to come up with some kind of number. They're innumerable. Yeah, but how many are there? (laughs) Innumerable. We can't count them all. But one estimate is 10 to the power of 22 stars. So it's 10 with 22 zeros after it. So assuming that that's even close, if you could put a computer together that could count, this is is one website that that was explaining this, if you could put a computer together that could count one trillion stars every second, 
it would take 300 years to count that many stars. It's just mind-blowing. Of course, another interesting aspect of stars is their placement relative to earth. Verse 3 says, God set them in place. They're exactly where they were meant to be and where they were designed to be. And the arrangement of stars in constellations is not an accident. In fact, the existence of constellations is due to God's plan. Remember in Genesis, he put the stars and the moon and, and all of that out there in space together for us. And he said, what, were the, what was it for? It was for signs and seasons, right? And, and we can track seasons and, and watch as, as time progresses and as it moves as all of those constellations move. Well, they don't move as we move, and they, uh, they appear to move from here. God, in correcting Job in Job 38, said, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? These constellations, God says, those, those were meant for you to see and to acknowledge and recognize, but you have no control over them. God does. Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazarot, which could be the the constellations in general or a specific one, in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? God meant for constellations to exist and for us to view them from the earth. So God did all of this. He did it artfully. He did it skillfully and precisely, yet with his voice in one day. Wow. Wow. This God. All of it in scale, in, in quality, in quantity, and, and when he did, and as he does every year, he, he uses them for signs and seasons, and we can track, we can see how useful they are to us, signaling summer and winter coming, not for astrology, not for distorting their use. But God is so majestic, and he's so glorious and powerful, and he's huge, and he's skillful. So then verse 4, David says, you know, I look up, I see all that, the vastness, the enormity, the the complexity, the intricacy. It leads us to be that God is majestic in name, be in caring for man, verses 4 through 8. In creation and in caring for man, God is majestic as he created all of this vastness, but in the midst of making all of this and holding it all together, he made man and he cares for man. What is man, verse 4 says? Man is insignificant compared to all of this. More than that, the question is, what is man that you are mindful of him and that you care for him? Mindful. It's the word for remember. You remember, uh, you remember in, in uh, Genesis as God remembered Noah. It was, it was thinking of him, bringing to mind, considering him. God remembered Abraham when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God remembered Rachel so that she, she could give birth. It's thinking on and and bringing to mind God knows each person and God considers and knows and remembers each human being. Jesus told his disciples that God the Father had numbered each of the hairs on their heads. Now that's something impossible for any of us to keep track of, nor would we ever have time for that, right? The average human being loses 50 to 100 hairs a day, according to scientists. Some of us are like, well, that explains it, right? it would be nearly impossible to keep up with that, to keep track of such an unimportant, irrelevant bit of trivia, but it's not unimportant to God. It's not a level of knowledge that's below him. He knows and keeps in mind every human being. Jesus said that to his disciples. Is that true of everybody? Paul said to the unbelievers on the ship in Acts 27, they were were about to be shipwrecked. 
He said in Acts 27, 34, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. How would he know that? God knows that. The hairs of the heads of unbelievers and believers. In Acts 17, Paul addresses the unbelievers in Athens at the Areopagus, and he tells them, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Our very existence happens within God's sphere of control, his goodness. God is mindful of every human being, along with holding the entire universe together and running it all. He's not just mindful of man. Number two, he cares for him. To care is to pay attention to. To care for, he's involved with each and every piece of every part of her life for every one of us. Again, in Acts 17, 28, every part of our existence, our movement, our life functions, all of it happens within the sphere of God as ruler. Deuteronomy 4, 19 says, God allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the host of heaven. Matthew 5.45 says, God the Father makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Luke 6.35, Jesus teaches, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Psalm 136.25 says, God gives food to all flesh. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 145 says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. See, some people have imagined that God's not really interested in what's happening here. That he doesn't really care about what's happening in your life or what's going on or the things that are happening to you. He doesn't see, he doesn't know. He's just too occupied with running the universe or with other people that are more important. But it's right that he's infinitely bigger than the universe and all of creation, but he is intimately involved with every aspect of life. He is mindful of man. He cares for the son of man. Secular philosophers and scientists have looked at the vastness, the, the intricacy of, of creation, the universe, the, all of space, and they arrive at some very similar and some very different observations. What is man? Is there any significance to mankind at all? In 2007, American philosopher Susan Wolfe said, for perspective's sake, each person should just recognize their life is merely gratuitous. There's no reason for it. It's just, just, there's no ultimate meaning. French philosopher Blaise Pascal in 1669 said, quote, When I consider the short duration of my life, swallowed up in an eternity before and after, the little space I fill engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces whereof I know nothing, and which know nothing of me, I am terrified. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me, end quote. Upon seeing the pale blue dot of the earth from the picture taken from Voyager 1, in 1994, Carl Sagan famously said that that blue dot, which was earth, challenges, quote, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, and the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, end quote. In other words, mankind has no answer for why we should be considered important or relevant or why we should even exist. Apart from God, there's no real significance or importance in any way to ourselves other than our own imaginations. But see, that's the point of this section in Psalm. 
Psalm 8, though we are so small, even though we're so temporary, we're so fragile, God gives us meaning. God gives us significance. His greatness and his magnificence and his glory extends to us as his creation because he made us and he interacts with us. Mankind is unique among all creation, but it's not because of ourselves. It's not because of what we can do. It's because of what the great God has done to us and in us and through us and for us. We're important because we matter to God. (laughs) In all of mankind's attempts to find meaning, we keep coming up empty. Why? Because our existence is due to this glorious, majestic God. That's where our purpose is. And so when we imagine that there's no God or we try to act and run our life like there's no God and, and you know, all this stuff is happening and these bad things are going on and, and I just don't understand and I just, there's no point or any, to any of this. We, we live like there's no God. We cut ourselves off from our meaning, from our significance, from the one who is all significant and gives us meaning and significance. So we see in verse 5, the place of mankind is a little lower than the heavenly beings, the mighty ones, often understood as angels, but the idea is mankind is only a little lower than anyone in the heavenly places, yet higher than anything else in the physical realm. God is the one who crowned mankind with glory and honor. Glory is weightiness, a, a, a dignity, a respect. Mankind is so small, that's what honor is. Mankind is so small compared to the universe, he exists below the heavenly beings, even smaller compared to the greatness of God, yet God has seen to it that we have an outsized weightiness, importance that is worthy of respect. Human life is. God did that. He, how many times does he say it here in Psalm 8, in, in verse 5? You have made him. Verse 6, you have given him. You have put all things under his feet. God is far from disinterested with his creation, particularly mankind. He's ordered it all. So keep in mind that though we like to point to these verses as the reason for mankind's glory and honor, and that's correct, the point is how far above and beyond the glory and the honor of God is. He has so much glory that he's crowned mankind with it. And yet he still retains all glory and all honor for all time. He's infinitely glorious and honorable. Verse 6 is so striking. The responsibility for this great creation falls to mankind who's lower than the heavenly beings. Lower than God, lower than the heavenly beings, mankind is granted dominion over the part of creation that he can rule. The sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, David says. And we have no control over what happens in the heavens, right? The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. We have no control over that. He, God keeps responsibility for all of that. But what happens here is man's responsibility. And so we see a, a stratification here, we, a levels of creation. You've got fish and you've got birds and the beasts. And then you've got mankind over them and you've got heavenly beings and then you've got God over the whole thing. That leads us to verse 9. The Lord is majestic in name. So that was, that was number one. It's, it's number three also. <laughs> because it was in verse one and it's in verse nine again. He just, it's almost like David says, let's just step back and recognize it all again. It's a complete repetition. It's a repeat of what he's already said. 
It's almost like David is saying, just, just repeat this over and over again. It's like the praise song with that repeating chorus that you sing over and over and over. You're like, when, when is this song going to end? This song will never end. <laughs> the majestic, glorious, honorable, skillful, powerful, huge God, he, his praise endures forever. How majestic is your name. Never stop rehearsing this all the time, constantly in your heart and mind. Never stop for all of eternity. Sing this, remember this, know this, recognize his awesome greatness and majesty. You can look up, you can look down, you can look around, you can look within, you can look everywhere you can see, and you can see the majestic power and skill and wisdom of this great God. Only the hardest stone of hearts would look around and say, there's no God. He doesn't, there's no creator. There is a God to whom all thankfulness is due. Now, we've looked at this psalm. And, and there's one more point to consider in our outline, and that's because all of this glory and all of this honor extends from the Father to the Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Number four, the Lord Jesus is majestic. The Lord Jesus is majestic, and we find this in Hebrews chapter 2, where the, the writer of Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 8. In Hebrews, the writer is proclaiming the greatness and the superiority of Jesus Christ over everyone and everything. In chapter 1, it, it's Jesus through whom God the Father made everything. Jesus is the one who upholds everything. How? By the power of his voice. Jesus is, verse 3 of chapter 1, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, Jesus, as God, was the creator with God the Father. And with the Father, he upholds all of the universe just like God, as because he is God. It's Jesus who was with the Father, and just like the Father, he's glorious. He has the same nature, and he's powerful. And it continues in Hebrews, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's how the, that's how the writer of Hebrews refers to God, the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. See, Jesus is at the right hand of the majestic God, and his name is majestic also, and is above all earthly and heavenly creatures. And so in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews quotes this psalm for the interest of time. We won't read it again. We already did read Psalm 8. <laughs> so he quotes it again, but he explains the greatness of Jesus. These verses that speak of the paradox of man's dignity and value, yet smallness before God, are applied to Jesus as he humbled himself to become a man. But God will exalt him so that everything will be put in subjection to him under Jesus' feet. Nothing will be excluded. Though at the present time, we don't see it. Here's what verse 9 says. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The idea of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, the idea of the scriptures here is that Jesus is majestic. And he's full of glory and honor, just as God the Father is. And as God the Son became man, he came and he tasted death for us because of our sin. He gave himself to save us. He was already full of glory and splendor and majesty and power. But he's earned even more by coming to save us. 
What a majestic, glorious, powerful, skillful, wise God this is. Can you think of anything to thank God for? As we get ready to celebrate a day where we just set aside to just give thanks, who are we going to give thanks to? This God. What are we going to give thanks to Him for? Well, certainly we're going to thank Him for our salvation. We're going to thank Him for how He provides for all that He's done for us, far more than we could think or imagine. But we're not going to forget to thank Him for who He is. Thank him for who he is as the majesty, the glory, the power, the greatness, the beauty. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our God. Father, we praise you, Lord. We thank you that you are God. Lord, our words fail because our minds are so infinite and we're so small. And compared to all of this around us that we can see, we're we're so insignificant, but God, we're not insignificant to you. Lord, you have cared for us. You are mindful of us. Father, there's nothing in us that deserves that. God, there's nothing that we've done to earn that. Lord, the the value and the worth that we have is because of your value, your eternal worth. God, we praise you. We give you thanks, Lord. Father, I pray that we who know Jesus Christ and have been saved by him, Father, that we would never stop giving thanks. Lord, that we would be rejoicing and praying and always giving thanks. There's so much for us to be grateful for, Father. Not just what you've given to us and what you've done for us, but Lord, just because you are the great God, you are who you are. Father, thank you that in who you are, you are immutable, unchangeable, God. You're perfect in all of your ways. We lift up the name of our God. We lift up the name of our Savior, Jesus. We pray and ask all of this in his name that we would live for him, for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.